June the 9th, 1934, saw the introduction of which well-known Walt Disney character? Who ended his military career on the 18th of June, 1815, at Waterloo? Who arrived on the 2nd of June, 1940, to begin his military career at Bexhill-on-Sea? What links those three events? The answers to these and many equally pressing questions are to be found in this month's issue of Worcester's Talking Magazine, Look Here. Help me to answer those questions. With me in the studio are Christine Buckley, Hello. Jane Fairs, Hello. and Barney Burnham. Hello. So, Christine, which Walt Disney character started his career on the 9th of June, 1934? Well, I suppose the most obvious answer would be Mickey Mouse. Most obvious, but not right. It's Donald Duck. Mickey Mouse began in Steamboat Willie in the 1920s. Jane whose last battle took place at Waterloo on the 18th of June, 1815? Napoleon. Well done. And Barney, who began his military career in June 1940 at Bexhill-on-Sea? I think it was possibly Terence Allen Milligan. It was indeed, and we shall hear more from Spike later on. And finally, everybody, what links all three of those events? Yes, the answer is the month of June, this very month. The Romans' name for June was Junius. It originally had 29 days. Julius Caesar added the extra day for reasons best known to himself. The poet Ovid, in a poem about the Roman calendar, offers three possibilities as to the derivation of the name Junius or June. The first is that the month is named after the Roman goddess of marriage, Juno. The second is that the name comes from the Latin word juniores, meaning younger ones. Another possibility is that June is named after Lucius Junius Brutus, founder of the Roman Republic. So, you pays your money and you makes your choice. Juno seems most likely to me. In ancient Rome, the period from mid-May to mid-June was apparently considered an unlucky time to get married. Ovid says that he consulted the high priestess of Jupiter about setting a date for his daughter's wedding and was advised to wait till after the 15th of June. Other ancient sources say that June was much more favourable for weddings than May, which makes more sense given that Juno was the goddess of marriage. Nowadays, June is amongst the most popular months for weddings. June the 1st is the geological start of summer, and this year, the longest day, the summer solstice, falls on June the 21st. This is always marked by a gathering of modern-day druids at Stonehenge, where the sun will rise behind what is known as the Heelstone in the northeast part of the horizon, and the first rays will then shine directly into Stonehenge. There are several theories as to its construction, but the majority view is that Stonehenge acts as an astronomical calendar to track the movement of the sun, the moon and the stars. (music) 
I knew that you were coming, June. I knew that you were coming. Among the alders by the stream I heard a partridge drumming. I heard a partridge drumming, June, a welcome with his wings, and felt a softness in the air, half summers and half springs. I knew that you were nearing, June. I knew that you were nearing. I saw it in the bursting buds of roses in the clearing. The roses in the clearing, June, were blushing pink and red, for they had heard upon the hills the echo of your tread. I knew that you were coming, June. I knew that you were coming, for every warbler in the wood a song of joy was humming. I know that you are here, June. I know that you are here. The fairy month, the merry month, the laughter of the year. Thank you, Jane. That was written by Douglas Malloch and was entitled, not surprisingly, June. As we learnt at the beginning of this magazine, it was in June 1940 that Spike Milligan arrived on the south coast of England to kick off his time in the forces. By the time he was relieved of frontline duties suffering from shell shock, he had seen action in Italy and in Africa, where he had met Harry Seacombe, and been wounded at the Battle of Monte Cassino. No longer having to fight, he continued nevertheless to entertain the troops in a jazz band and write sketches which parodied army life, and there was plenty to parody. Although he is best remembered for the goons, he also wrote a series of books chronicling his experiences during the Second World War, in the first of which, Adolf Hitler, My Part in His Downfall, Milligan describes his introduction to military life. One morning I received a card asking me to attend a medical at the Yorkshire Grey pub in Eltham. The card said I was to report at 9.30am. Please be prompt. I arrived prompt at 9.30 and was seen promptly at 12.15. We were told to strip. This revealed a mass of pale youths with thin, white, hairy legs. A grey-faced, bald doctor asked... How do you feel? All right, I said. Do you feel fit? No, I walked here. Grinning evilly, he wrote grade one in blood-red ink on my card. No black cap, I said. It's at the laundry, he replied. The die was cast. It was a proud day for the Milligan family as I was taken from the house. I'm too young to go! I screamed as military policemen dragged me from my pram, clutching a dummy. At Victoria Station, I was given a travel warrant, a white feather, and a picture of Hitler marked, This is your enemy. I searched the whole train, but he wasn't on it. At 4.30, June the 2nd, 1940, on a summer's day, all mare's tails and blue sky, we arrived at Bexilon-Sea, where I got off. It wasn't easy. The train didn't stop there. Spike joined the 56th Heavy Regiment Royal Artillery, who were equipped with First World War field guns. It was thanks to Churchill that we had any guns at all. In 1918, he'd ordered that all 9.2 field guns were to be stored in case of future eventualities. There was only one drawback, no ammunition. This did not deter our CO, who soon had the gun crew shouting, Bang! in unison. This, he assured visiting senior officers, helps keep up morale. By luck, 
a 9.2 shell was discovered at Woolwich Arsenal. An official application was made. In due course, the shell arrived. A guard was mounted over it. A month later, application was made to HQ Southern Command to fire the shell. The date was set for July the 2nd, 1940. Eventually, the great day dawned. We were marched to a secret location on the coast, known only to us and the enemy. Freezing, with a gathering fog, we all sat in the corner of a sandy beach. They told us, listen for the bang and look for the splash. Before the visiting senior officers arrived, the fog obscured the view. The order now became, listen for the splash. Zero hour, tension mounted, then disaster! Signals reported that the line to the gun position had a break. Signallers Devine and White, who would do anything for a break, set off. The fog was now settling inland. Every ten minutes for two hours, Signaller Devine phoned and gleefully reported, Line still broken, Sarge. The fog was now very dense. The CO's patience being exhausted, a runner was sent to the gun position. Another hour passed. He was lost. In despair, Sergeant Dawson bicycled to the police station, telephoned the gun position and told them, Fire the bloody thing! A distant boom. Then we heard the whistle as the rare projectile passed overhead into the channel. A pause, a splash, then silence. It was a dud. How could the Third Reich stand up to this punishment? Following the anticlimax of the shell, military life in the Sussex countryside settled into a quiet routine. The summer of 1941 was a delight. The late lambs on spring-heel legs danced their happiness. The musk of bramble and blackberry hedges with purple-black fruit offering themselves to passing hands. It was hop-picking time. In 1941, the pickers were real cockneys, who, to the consternation of the ARP wardens, lit bonfires at night and sang roistering songs under the stars. Right, fags out, fall in. Of course, I almost forgot the war, but people were saying it would all be over by Christmas. Good, that was in 12 weeks' time. I started to read the situations vacant in the Daily Telegraph and prematurely advertised Gunner 954024, retired house-trained war hero, unexpectedly vacant, can pull a piece of string and shout, Bang! with confidence. Spike was a keen, often outspoken environmentalist and would have appreciated the work of the Woodland Trust, in whose Broadleaf magazine we found this article about bumblebees. Christine. Bumblebees are the messy toddlers of the natural world. Sticky, clumsy and covered in food. But according to Bex Cartwright of the Bumblebee Conservation Trust, that's what makes them such perfect pollinators. Foraging honeybees are incredibly efficient, says Bex. They store pollen in neat little sacks on their back legs, whereas a bumblebee looks like it's been swimming in the stuff. Bumblebees are much bigger and hairier and they get completely coated but it means they're fantastic at transferring it from one plant to the next. Such is the pollinating prowess of bumblebees and other solitary species that one study reckoned they're almost twice as effective as their honey-loving cousins. 
put both lots together and it's thought the 270 species of native British bee contribute £650 million a year to our economy in services to agriculture and horticulture. Along with other insects, they're also responsible for pollinating 80% of our flowers, not to mention many native trees. Bees are sun-loving creatures, but the degradation of their traditional flower-rich stomping grounds means our woodland rides and glades are increasingly important. Tree blossom and pollen provide vital food in early spring when flowers are thin on the ground. We've lost 98% of our wildflower meadows since the Second World War, says Bex. That's a disaster for pollinators. A third of our bumblebee species have declined by 70% or more, squeezed into ever smaller islands of habitat. Two native species have been wiped out altogether and seven of the remaining 24 are on the edge. One bee hanging on by the skin of its mandibles is the shrill carder, named for its distinctive high-pitched buzz. It is now our rarest native bumblebee, confined to seven isolated pockets along the southern coasts of England and Wales. Bex and her buzzing battalion at the BBCT are working to reverse its fortunes through a £965,000 project spanning Kent's northern seaboard. They aim to create flower-rich stepping stones between colonies and one surprising new stronghold is Victory Wood near Whitstable, flagship site for the Woodland Trust Trafalgar Woods planting drive in 2005, which has since morphed from arable into thriving wood and meadow. It's really exciting, says Bex. We suspect they returned because of the work done by the Trust to restore the flower-rich grasslands. We're now after volunteers to monitor the colony and help us learn more about its foraging and breeding habits. Woodland reserves can create mini bee havens, but farmland is key to the bigger picture. Between 1984 and 1990 alone, England lost 20% of its hedges, and while the decline has now stabilised, replacing lost hedges and trees is still a priority. Even when bees have the chance to gorge on nearby crops, hedgerows still top the menu, she reports, and bees are choosy too. We tend to think of them as little robots, but we've discovered that in each colony, individuals have favourite foods. That highlights the need for our countryside to provide a rich variety of pollen rather than being a monoculture. Bumblebees only store a few days' worth in their nests, so if they rely on a single source and it runs out, the whole colony can die. The British black bee is the honeybee holy grail. Adapted to both our summers and winters, some strains are also resistant to the deadly varroa mite. According to apicultural legend, the black bee was wiped out a century ago by a bee lurgy known as Isle of Wight disease, leaving UK beekeepers to rely on European strains for their hives. But in a corner of Northumberland, beekeeper Dorian Pritchard is on a mission. About 40 years ago, a few of us became convinced that the native black bee was still going strong in isolated pockets here, he says. I'm a geneticist by training, so I selected colonies of dark bees and began to breed. My dream would be to reinstate British black bees across the UK. 
Dorian now keeps 22 hives of black bees, which he's been able to prove are distinct from European honeybees using the vein patterns in their wings and DNA analysis, both of which are unique. One discovery is that black bees forage on a wider range of pollens, which we think contributes to their greater resistance to disease. Varroa mites will wipe out a European hive in two to three years, but I first spotted Varroa in my hives 19 years ago and my bees are still going strong. The challenge for Dorian and other keepers of black bees, including Richard Wilson, the Woodland Trust site manager in Northumberland, is to prevent crossbreeding between the strains. Luckily, honeybees only have a range of about three miles, so up here it's easy to isolate the species, explains Richard. I focus on managing our woods for bees by improving the floristic value of verges and grassland and planting pollinator-friendly trees like crabapple, hazel and lime. That bridges the hunger gaps for bees early and late in the season. The work the Trust does to restore ecosystems and enrich landscapes, says Richard, is vital for a brighter bee future. And where better to foster bees than in your own garden? Mike Lane talking to Vonya Carlton. Growing Sense. So, Mike, what are we up to today? Hi, Vonya. First of all, I'm so happy about your lawn. Yes, it's a great improvement. You've put the grass seed down, which has obviously filled the gaps, and it's looking healthy. It took a while for the seed to take. Yes, yeah, uh, probably because of the weather. Yes. You know, we had such a cold spring, yes. and in all the wet weather as well. Indeed. Um, I, di- I did get some special seed, which was supposed to be for cold weather. Okay, so and obviously the weed and feeds worked worked well. as It you know, did, as, yes, and I scarified and got I, all the moss out. Yeah, I quite like the way you've left it long as well, because it's just it's just nice to walk through it this, this length. It is, um, and the wildflowers, you know, yeah, that were sowed. yeah. They're all coming You've got through. Some pockets over there, I see, already coming up. And at least that's going to encourage the wildlife into the garden. Indeed. The bees yeah. and the yeah, butterflies and, yeah. and everything Talking else. Talking of butterflies, I was thinking that it might be quite nice to have a buddleia. Yes. Are they yeah. trees or bushes? Can you grow them as either? <laughs> Technically, I'd say it's a bush. But quite often, if you let them grow, they will grow into trees. And they can take over... Oh, right. But I always recommend each year just prune it back down to a stump and it'll shoot up again. Oh, lovely. And it's also nice to see that obviously you've had some pruning done and you've just left a couple of logs around. Yes. Um, which is another good thing to help help the insects. And I, and you've also put a new water butt up as well, I see. Yes. Which could be helpful for your new project. Tell me more. So I've been sort of looking at this area and I thought maybe we need to construct a couple of raised beds. Well, that would be really helpful because most of the seeds that we sowed in the greenhouse, yep. they're looking quite good. So I guess they need hardening off and planting yeah. out. There's a lot of advantages with having a raised bed. Your soil should heat up a lot quicker and also extend the growing season potentially as well. Mm. Um, obviously, if you get hot weather, you're going to have to water them more. Mm. The soil here is average, should we say, mm. but we can actually choose what soil we want. I'm, I know you're a bit of a fan of um, blueberries. I am. So if you, if say, if say you wanted to plant some some blueberry 
bushes, we could get in some more ericaceous soil mix. Could I put other things in there that like ericaceous soil? Oh, yes. I could have some flowers in amongst my blueberries. I, I that would be definitely, nice definitely them. recommend that. Mm. There's so many different materials we can use to build raised beds. Okay. I quite like to use railway sleepers. Okay. Because if I use a railway sleeper, I can also sit on it. And do a bit and, of weeding. Uh, do a bit of weeding. Other materials we could use are scaffolding boards, possibly some old pallets, um, bathtub. It's interesting. Know of a friend who's a plumber, and he's <laughs> got uh, six bathtubs in his garden and drilled some holes through them. And he's using those as, <laughs> as a raised bed. When you construct the raised beds, mm -hmm. it's always worthwhile not making them too large because you always want to lean into the middle of them. Yeah. Just an arm's length wide. And is it best to have it sort of more central rather than by a wall so you can get all the way around? Yes, yeah, yeah. If you can work your way around the raised beds as well, can't yeah. you? It's... Do you line them? You can do, maybe with a plastic membrane, yes. uh, just to hold the water. Uh, some people prefer not to, but mm. it's a good way of holding water back. Um, much the same as using mulch as well, especially if you're going to do flowers. Oh yes, it's... I'm making compost. <laughs> so we're going to just level off an area first, and then we're going to just put the sleepers down, and then we're going to put some wooden posts in the, in the corners, and then we'll just build up from there. Yes. Right, we've got quite a good size here, haven't we? Mm. So should we start with four? Do four this year, and yep. then see... see how it goes. Yeah. You've already spend a lot of time in the greenhouse i have It'd be nice to get these courgettes i've got some sweet corn sweet corn they feel lovely yeah because they're all sort of like frondy at the top you know when the sweet corn yes. forms yeah it's quite good to just sow some peas in one and then something else in the other and then you rotate, rotate. them the following year yeah crop, so four crop is rotation. probably yep. good then yep. you don't grow the same thing in, on the same soil yep right obviously we're in june so there's a number of other, other jobs we could be doing. I like being outside <laughs> this time of year. So I can see that you've you've already started with lifting some of your daffodils and laid the bulbs out on newspaper. Yep. To dry to in dry the shed. Yeah. Um. That's that's the best way because then you can reuse them next year. Uh, the other option, obviously, with daffodils is is just to basically cut them off and leave them in the ground. And also, we can also start looking at maybe trimming back some shrubs. But I'm quite a fan of just letting the shrubs do yeah. their own thing and yeah. let them flower and then trim, trim them back. Yes, the best time to do it is after they've flowered, is that That's right? That's right, yeah, yeah. And obviously you've got to, with hedges and things, maybe think of the bird nesting. Oh, so yes. if you can, leave it until sort of August. Oh, right, um, that late. That late. Embrace the flowers. Mm. <laughs> um, well, Mike... I think you've given me plenty to think about and lots to do. We've definitely got a lot to get on with, haven't we? Yes. Shall we have a quick cup of tea and then get on with Let's it? Let's have a quick cup of tea. The weather's looking good. Yep. And, uh, yep. Okay. Let's track on. Lovely. Excellent. <laughs> okay. <laughs> that was Mike Lane talking to Vonya Carlton. Someone who had an obsessive interest in plants was Joseph Rock. Jane. As plant hunters go... Joseph Rock was not a lucky man. Far from leading a charmed life, he led what can only be regarded as a frustrated one. One disaster after another attended his progress, on top of which he seems to have been notably unlikable. The editor of National Geographic magazine, who published several articles by Rock, pronounced him 
one of the most cantankerous of human beings. Though Rock had spent in all more than 50 years collecting plants, introducing no fewer than 493 species of rhododendron into the Western world, as well as many kinds of berberis, primula and potentilla, and collected thousands of valuable herb specimens, poor Rock never really hit it big. Joseph Frank Karl Rock was born in Vienna in 1884 and from the first showed an interest in unusual forms of scholarship. When he was 10, he started to learn Arabic and by 16 was teaching it. Chinese came next. Bridling at family plans to make him enter the priesthood, he set off for England, but predictably never got there. He missed the Channel Steamer at Antwerp and, in a fit of enthusiasm, booked a passage to America instead. Joseph with an F became Joseph with a PH. Wandering from place to place around the States in search of a climate that would favour his weak chest, Rock picked up English in Texas and eventually arrived in Hawaii, where he gained both his health and a job teaching Latin and natural history. Up to this point, he had shown few signs of any interest in botany, much less expertise, but in 1908 he suddenly blossomed as the first ever botanical collector for the Hawaiian Division of Forestry and began churning out an amazing number of learned articles and books on everything from trees to algae. He also found time to assemble an impressive herbarium and to take up American citizenship. Being rock, however, problems arose. The forestry division ran out of funds. He shifted to the College of Hawaii, where he taught and continued to clamber through the hills collecting. He was not happy teaching. His few students remembered him as temperamental as a prima donna. Moody and private, he later admitted that he was dreadfully lonely. Trips at his own expense to the Far East and once around the world cheered him up a bit, but by 1920 he was ready to quit. The last straw was a decision to move his precious herbarium, by then some 25,000 specimens out of his control. Furious, he headed for the mainland to look for another job. As his biographer S.P.D. Sutton observes, specialists in Hawaiian botany were not exactly in demand at the time. After several rejections, however, he struck upon an opportunity that seemed likely to justify all his previously unrewarded efforts the Office of Foreign Seed and Plant Introduction of the United States Department of Agriculture wanted someone to find the mysterious Chalmugra tree, source of what promised to be the first effective cure for leprosy. Who better than Joseph Rock? Though Chalmugra nuts had appeared in Thai and Burmese markets, the tree itself was elusive. Rumour placed it in the Doi Sutep Mountains, west of Chiang Mai, 
but of the tree there was no sign. Travelling first by boat and then over land, through dense tropical forests inhabited by tigers, leopards and snakes to Burma, he was advised by natives that the tree he was looking for grew in the Kalama range north of Moulmain. The tree in question, though a near relative, turned out to be the wrong one. So Rock pressed on. When he found the tree in a jungle north of Mandalay, the first specimens were without nuts. But by scouring the countryside, he at last got what he was looking for. Then, loaded with seed, Rock trekked back to civilization. Unfortunately for him, it soon transpired that the Chalmugra oil that he had gone to so much trouble to find was not a miracle cure for leprosy after all. It worked in some cases, but the side effects were insupportable and researchers moved on to other treatments. Poor Rock had to move on too. Still supported by the USDA, he travelled north to hunt for plants in China proper, finally settling in the town of Laikiang in the western province of Yunnan, where he would spend most of the rest of his life. Here, he collected in earnest tens of thousands of plant specimens, more thousands of bird and mammal skins, and explored the mountains and valleys on the borders of Tibet. With his command of Chinese and the local dialects which he could soon speak, he recruited assistants and established relationships with local potentates like the King of Muli. Support from various American sources kept him going year by year, and he needed the money because Rock was never one to suffer in the field. When he went on an expedition, he normally moved in some state with a train of horses and carriers. His equipment included a folding bathtub, and he made a practice of dressing for dinner, which was prepared to his orders by a specially trained cook and consumed with silver cutlery laid on a linen-covered table. His rationale was face. As he once remarked, you've got to make people believe you're someone of importance if you want to live in these wilds. That may not be overstating the case. Rock's diaries are full of stories of marauding warlord armies, brigands, renegade armed priests and general disorder. In 1927, a funding crisis arose with the death of Charles Sargent, Rock's main backer. In the nick of time, he managed to secure a commission from the Geographic Society to explore unmapped mountains west of Laikiang. One expedition almost suffered disaster when an unseasonable hailstorm destroyed barley crops and the natives blamed it on the Rock Party. They had been circling the sacred mountains in an anti-clockwise direction, which every good Tibetan knows is blasphemous. But it was during this trip that Rock got his first glimpse of an enormous mountain called Minyakonka. Could it be the highest mountain in the world? In March 1929, 
confident that this time he had made a seriously important discovery, Rock set off on an expedition with the Geographic Society backing to find out. Climbing it was out of the question, so Rock took bearings from surrounding high points with a variety of instruments before reaching his triumphant conclusion. Minyakonka, highest peak on the globe, 30,250 feet, Rock, said the cable to the society. As it turned out, it wasn't. Rock's enthusiasm had run away with him again. Minyakonka, while a considerable protuberance, was roughly a mile shorter than Rock's calculation and no rival to Everest. Rock might be excused for not noticing the Wall Street crash, but it had a direct effect on his income. Moreover, the editors of the National Geographic were getting restive. Imagination he has none or form, wrote an employee. Apparently he's never learnt to write with a view to holding reader interest. Possibly because of this, his contributions ceased. Floods, roaming gangs of leaderless soldiers, inflation, toothaches, all these made Rock's life unpleasant. He even fell back on speculating in currency and, of course, lost money. The approach of war unsettled him completely. Plates for one major work were destroyed by Japanese bombs at a printer in Shanghai, while all his notes and manuscripts, the fruits of 12 years' labour, went to the bottom when the ship carrying them to Egypt was torpedoed. He retreated to Hawaii and devoted his last years to reconstructing his lost papers. It isn't easy to get the measure of Joseph Rock as a plant hunter. Significantly, he never published so much as a single paper on Chinese plants, though he worked with them for nearly half a century. Hundreds of plant varieties bear his name, and his memory as a plantsman lives on. In his book, Travels in China, Roy Lancaster tells of meeting a very old man there who remembered Rock. Because of ill health, Rock had employed villagers to hunt plants for him, but he was the only one who could tell them what to look for. Thanks for that to Charles Eliot in the Potting Shed Papers, published by Francis Lincoln. Never to let the grass grow under their feet either, Jerome K. Jerome's three men were keen to get to Kingston to pick up their craft for their fortnight's expedition up the Thames. Christine. We got to Waterloo at 11 and asked where the 11.5 started from. Of course, nobody knew. Nobody at Waterloo ever does know where a train is going to start from, where a train, when it does start, is going to, or anything about it. The porter who took our things thought it would go from number two platform, while another porter, with whom he discussed the question, had heard a rumour that it would go from number one. The station master, on the other hand, was convinced it would start from the local. 
To put an end to the matter, we went upstairs and asked the traffic superintendent. And he told us that he'd just met a man who said he'd seen it at number three platform. We went to number three platform, but the authorities there said that they rather thought that train was the Southampton Express, or else the Windsor Loop. But they were sure it wasn't the Kingston train, although why they were sure it wasn't, they couldn't say. Then our porter said he thought it must be on the high-level platform, said he thought he knew the train. So we went to the high-level platform and saw the engine driver and asked him if he was going to Kingston. He said he couldn't say for certain, of course, but that he rather thought he was. Anyhow, if he wasn't the 11.5 for Kingston, he said he was pretty confident that it was the 9.32 for Virginia Water, oh, the 10am express for the Isle of Wight, or somewhere in that direction, and we should all know when we got there. We slipped half a crown into his hand and begged him to be the 11.5 for Kingston. Nobody will ever know on this line, we said, what you are or where you're going. You know the way. You slip off quietly and go to Kingston. Well, I don't know, gents, replied the noble fellow, but I suppose some train's got to go to Kingston, and I'll do it. Give me the half crown. Thus, we got to Kingston by the London and South Western Railway. We learnt afterwards that the train we had come by was really the Exeter Mail and that they'd spent hours at Waterloo looking for it and nobody knew what had become of it. Jerome K. Jerome has been credited with having shaped the writing of P.G. Woodhouse, who went on to create two of the most unforgettable characters in English literature, Jeeves and Worcester. In Woodhouse on Woodhouse he reveals how he came to be a full-time author. Barney. One of the things that sours authors, as every author knows, is being asked by people to write something clever in the front pages of their books. It was, I believe, George Eliot who, in a moment of despondency, made this rather bitter entry in her diary. Dear diary, am I a wreck tonight? I feel I never want to see another great admirer of my work again. It's not writing novels that's hard. I can write novels till the cows come home. What slaves you is this gosh-darned autographing. Oh, please, not just your name. Won't you write something clever? I wish the whole bunch of them were in jail and I'd laugh myself sick if the jail burned down. And Richard Powell, the whodunit author, was complaining of this in a recent issue of The American Writer. I begin sweating, he said, as soon as someone approaches me with a copy of one of my books. I feel the same. When I write a book, the golden words come pouring out like syrup. But let a smiling woman steal up to me with my latest and ask me to dash off something clever on the front page, and it's as though some hidden hand had removed my brain and substituted for it an order of cauliflower. There may be authors capable of writing something clever on the spur of the moment, but I am not of their number. I like at least a month's notice, and even then I don't guarantee anything. Sometimes the quickness of the hand will get me by, but not often. When I'm not typing, I use one of those pen-pencil things which called for no blotting paper. The ink dries as you write, so I take the book and scribble Best Wishes P.G. Woodhouse 
and with equal haste slam the lid, hoping that the party of the second part will have the decency not to peer inside till I'm well out of the way. It seldom happens. Nine out of ten times she snaps the thing open like a waiter opening an oyster, and then the disappointed look, the awkward pause and the pained, but I wanted something clever. The only time I ever wrote anything really clever on the front page of a book was when I was in the cash department of the Hong Kong and Shanghai Bank and a new ledger came in and was placed in my charge. It had a white, gleaming front page and suddenly, as I sat gazing at it, there floated into my mind like drifting thistledown the idea of writing on it a richly comic description of the celebrations and rejoicings marking the formal opening of the new ledger, and I immediately proceeded to do so. It was the most terrific piece, and though 55 years have passed since that day, it's still green in my memory. It had everything. There was a bit about my being presented to His Gracious Majesty the King, who of course attended the function, which would have had you gasping with mirth. From his tie he took a diamond tie pin and smiled at me, and then he put it back. And that was just one passing incident in it. The whole thing was a knockout. I can't give the details, you'll have to take my word for it. But it was one of the most screamingly funny things ever written. I sat back on my stool and felt like Dickens when he'd finished Pickwick. I was all aglow. Then came the reaction. The head cashier was rather an austere man who on several occasions had expressed dissatisfaction with the Youngwood house and something seemed to whisper to me that, good as the thing was, it would not go any too well with him. Briefly, I got cold feet and started to turn stones and explore avenues in the hope of finding some way of making everything pleasant for all concerned. In the end, I decided that the best thing to do was to cut the page out with a sharp knife. A few mornings later, the stillness of the bank was shattered by a sudden yell of triumph, not unlike the cry of the Brazilian wildcat leaping on its prey. It was the head cashier discovering the absence of the page, and the reason he yelled triumphantly was that he was feuding with the stationers and for weeks had been trying to get the goods on them in some way. He was at the telephone in two strides, asking them if they called themselves stationers. I suppose they replied that they did, for he then touched off his bombshell, accusing them of having delivered an imperfect ledger, a ledger with the front page missing. This brought the head stationer around in person, calling heaven to witness that when the book left his hands, it had been all that a ledger should be, if not more so. Somebody must have cut out the page, he said. Absurd, said the head cashier. Nobody but an imbecile would cut out the front page of a ledger. Then, said the stationer, coming right back at him, you must have an imbecile in your department. Have you? The head cashier started... This opened up a new line of thought. Why, yes, he admitted, for he was a fair-minded man. There is P.G. Woodhouse. Weak in the head, is he, this Woodhouse? Very, so I have always thought. Then send for him and question him narrowly, said the stationer. This was done. They got me under the lights and grilled me, and I had to come clean. 
It was immediately after this that I found myself at liberty to embark on the life literary. And one of the many rich fruits of that liberty is this little sporting tale, Mist. Jane. The sun in the heavens was beaming. The breeze bore an odour of hay. My flannels were spotless and gleaming. My heart was unclouded and gay. The ladies, all gaily apparelled, sat round looking on at the match. In the treetops, the dicky birds carolled. All was peace till I bungled that catch. My attention, the magic of summer, had lured from the game, which was wrong. The bee, that inveterate hummer, was droning its favourite song. I was tenderly dreaming of Clara. On her, not a girl is a patch. When, ah, horror, there soared through the air a decidedly possible catch. I heard in a stupor the bowler emit a self-satisfied ah. The small boys who sat on the roller set up an expectant hurrah. The batsman, with grief from the wicket, himself had begun to detach. And I uttered a groan and turned sick. It was over. I buttered the catch. Oh, ne'er, if I live to a million, shall I feel such a terrible pang. From the seats on the far-off pavilion, a loud yell of ecstasy rang. By the handful my hair, which is auburn, I tore with a wrench from my thatch, and my heart was seared deep with a raw burn at the thought that I'd foozled that catch. Ah, the bowler's low, querulous mutter points loud, unforgettable scoff. Oh, give me my driver and putter, henceforth my game shall be golf. If I'm asked to play cricket hereafter, I'm wholly determined to scratch. Life's void of all pleasure and laughter. I bungled the easiest catch. You may have read how Woodhouse was deprived of his liberty during the Second World War when he was imprisoned by the Germans and earned the hatred of many an Englishman, including Winston Churchill, by appearing to collaborate with his captors, recording radio talks making light of his predicament. Dylan Thomas, on the other hand, deliberately set about writing propaganda for the Allies, though his intentions were framed by the need for cash rather than by any ideology. Thomas joined Strand Films, making documentaries for the Ministry of Information at a time when America was about to join the war. But it wasn't until several years after the war ended that he finally took himself off to the States. Barney. Across the United States of America, from New York to California and back, glazed again for many months of the year, there streams and sings for its heady supper a dazed and prejudiced procession of European lecturers, scholars, sociologists, economists, writers, authorities on this and that, and even, in theory, on the United States of America. 
and breathlessly between addresses and receptions, in planes and trains and boiling hotel bedroom ovens, many of these attempt to keep journals and diaries. At first, confused and shocked by shameless profusion and almost shamed by generosity, unaccustomed to such importance as they are assumed by their hosts to possess, and up against the barrier of a common language, they write in their notebooks like demons, generalising away on character and culture and the American political scene. But towards the middle of their middle-aged whisk through Middle Western clubs and universities, the fury of the writing flags. Their spirits are lowered by the spirit with which they are everywhere strongly greeted and which in ever-increasing doses they themselves lower and they begin to mistrust themselves and their reputations. For they have found too often that an audience will receive a lecture on, say, ceramics with the same uninhibited enthusiasm that it accorded the very week before to a paper on the modern Turkish novel. And in their diaries, more and more do such entries appear as No Way of Escape or Buffalo or I Am Beaten, until at last they cannot write a word and twittering all over, old before their time, with eyes like rissoles in the sand, they helped up the gangway of the homebound liner by kind bosom friends of all kinds and bosoms, who boisted them on the back, picked them up again, thrust bottles, sonnets, cigars, addresses into their pockets, have a farewell party in their cabin, picked them up again, and snickering and yelping are gone to wait at the dockside for another boat from Europe and another batch of fresh green lecturers. There they go, every spring from New York to Los Angeles, exhibitionists, polemicists, histrionic publicists, theological rhetoricians, historical hoddy-doddies, balletto-mains, ulterior decorators, windbags and bigwigs and humbugs, men in love with stamps, men in love with stakes, men after millionaires' widows, men with elephantiasis of the reputation, huge trunks and teeny minds. Authorities on gas, bishops, bestsellers, editors looking for writers, writers looking for publishers, publishers looking for dollars, existentialists, serious physicists with nuclear missions. Men from the BBC who speak as though they had the Elgin marbles in their mouths. Pot-boiling philosophers, professional Irishmen, very leprechauny, and, I'm afraid, fat poets with slim volumes. And there, shiver and teeter also, meek and driven, those British authors, unfortunate enough to have written after years of unadventurous forgotten work, one bad novel which became enormously popular on both sides of the Atlantic. At home, when success first hit them, they were mildly delighted. A couple of literary luncheons went sugar-tipsy to their heads, like the washing sherry served before those luncheons. And perhaps, as the lovely money rolled lushly in, they began to dream in their moony writer's way of being able to retire to the country, keep wasps, or was it bees, and never write another lousy word. But in come the literary agent's trigger men and the publisher's armed narcs. You must go to the States and make a personal appearance. Your novel is killing them over there, and we're not surprised either. You must go round the States lecturing to women. And the inoffensive writers who've never dared lecture anyone, let alone women, they are frightened of women. They do not understand women. They write about women as creatures that never existed. And the women lap it up. 
these sensitive plants cry out, but what shall we lecture about? The English novel. I don't read novels. Great women in fiction. I don't like fiction or women. But off there wafted, first class in the plush bowels of the Queen Mary, with a list of engagements long as a New York menu, or half hour with a book by Charles Morgan, and soon they are losing their little colder's goldfish paw in the great general glutinous handshake of a clutch of enveloping hostesses. See the garrulous others also gabbing and garlanded from one nest of culture vultures to another, people selling the English way of life and condemning the American way as they swig and guzzle through it, people resurrecting the theories of surrealism for the benefit of remote parochial audiences who did not know it was dead, not having ever known it had been alive, people talking about Etruscan pots and pans to a bunch of dead pans and wealthy pots in Boston, and there too in the sticky thick of lecturers moving across the continent black with clubs go the foreign poets, catarrhal troubadours, lyrical one-night standers, dollar-mad nightingales, remittance bards from at home, myself among them, booming with the worst. I mentioned how Jerome K. Jerome had helped shaped Woodhouse's style, but Woodhouse was also influenced by H. H. Munro, otherwise known as the writer Saki. Was the picture that Saki paints in this short story of the male members of a family heading off like First World War soldiers to a cruel and muddy fate, a premonition of his own end in a shell hole on the Western Front? Jane reads The Open Window by Saki. My aunt will be down presently, Mr Nuttell, said a very self-possessed young lady of 15. In the meantime, you must try and put up with me. Frampton Nuttell endeavoured to say the correct something which should duly fatter the niece of the moment without unduly discounting the aunt that was to come. Privately, he doubted more than ever whether these formal visits on a succession of total strangers would do much towards helping the nerve cure which he was supposed to be undergoing. I know how it'll be, his sister said, when he was preparing to migrate to this rural retreat. You will bury yourself down there and not speak to a living soul, and your nerves will be worse than ever from moping. I shall just give you letters of introduction to all the people I know there. Some of them, as far as I can remember, were quite nice. Frampton wondered whether Mrs Sappleton, the lady to whom he was presenting one of the letters of introduction, came into the nice division. Do you know many of the people round here? asked the niece when she judged that they had had sufficient silent communion. Hardly a soul, said Frampton. My sister was staying here at the rectory, you know, some four years ago, and she gave me letters of introduction to some of the people here. He made the last statement in a tone of distinct regret. 
Then you know practically nothing about my aunt, pursued the self-possessed young lady. Only her name and address, admitted the caller. He was wondering whether Mrs Sappleton was in the married or widowed state. An undivinable something about the room seemed to suggest masculine habitation. Her great tragedy happened just three years ago, said the child. That would be since your sister's time. Her tragedy? asked Frampton. Somehow, in this restful country spot, tragedies seemed out of place. You may wonder why we keep that window open on an October afternoon, said the niece, indicating a large French window that opened out onto a lawn. It is quite warm for the time of year, said Frampton. But has that window got anything to do with the tragedy? Three years ago to the day, through that window, her husband and her two young brothers went off for their day's shooting. They never came back. In crossing the moor to their favourite snipe shooting ground, they were all three engulfed in a treacherous piece of bog. It had been that dreadful wet summer, you know, and the places that were safe in other years gave way suddenly without warning. Their bodies were never recovered. Poor aunt always thinks that they will come back some day. They and the little brown spaniel that was lost with them and walk in that window just as they used to do. That's why the window is kept open every evening till it is quite dusk. Poor dear aunt. She has often told me how they went out. Her husband with his white waterproof coat over his arm and Ronnie, her youngest brother, singing, Bertie, why do you bound? As he often did to tease her because she said it got on her nerves. Do you know, sometimes, on still quiet evenings like this, I almost get the creepy feeling that they will all walk in through that window. She broke off with a little shudder. It was a relief to Frampton when the aunt bustled into the room with a whirl of apologies for being late in making her appearance. I hope Vera's been amusing you, she said. She's been very interesting, said Frampton. I hope you don't mind the open window, said Mrs Sappleton briskly. My husband and brothers will be home directly from shooting and they always come in this way. They've been out for snipe in the marshes today, so they'll make a fine mess over my poor carpets. So like you men folk, isn't it? She rattled on cheerfully about shooting and the scarcity of birds and the prospects of duck in the winter. To Frampton, it was all purely horrible. He made a desperate but only partially successful effort to turn the talk onto a less ghastly topic. He was conscious that his hostess was giving him only a fragment of her attention and her eyes were constantly straying past him to the open window and the lawn beyond. It was certainly an unfortunate coincidence that he should have paid his visit on this tragic anniversary. The doctors agree in ordering me complete rest an absence of mental excitement and avoidance of anything in the nature of violent physical exercise, announced Frampton, 
who laboured under the tolerably widespread delusion that total strangers and chance acquaintances are hungry for the least detail of one's ailments and infirmities, their cause and cure. On the matter of diet, they're not so much in agreement, he continued. No, said Mrs. Lappleton, in a voice which only replaced a yawn at the last moment, and then she suddenly brightened into alert attention, but not to what Frampton was saying. Ah, here they are at last, she said, just in time for tea, and don't they look as if they're muddied up to the eyes? Frampton shivered slightly and turned towards the niece with a look intended to convey sympathetic comprehension. The child was staring out through the open window with dazed horror in her eyes. In a chilled shock of nameless fear, Frampton swung round in his seat and looked in the same direction. In the deepening twilight, three figures were walking across the lawn towards the window. They all carried guns under their arms, and one of them was additionally burdened with a white coat hung over his shoulders. A tired brown spaniel kept close at their heels. Noiselessly, they neared the house. Then a hoarse young voice chanted out of the dusk, I said, Bertie, why do you bound? Frampton grabbed wildly at his stick and hat. The hall door, the gravel drive and the front gate were dimly noted stages in his headlong retreat. A cyclist coming along the road had to run into the hedge to avoid imminent collision. Here we are, dear, said the bearer of the white Macintosh, coming in through the window. Fairly muddy, but most of it's dry. Who was that that bolted out as soon as we came up? A most extraordinary man. A Mr Nuttell, said Mrs Appleton, could only talk about his illnesses and dashed off without a word of goodbye or apology when you arrived. One would think he'd seen a ghost. I expect it was the Spaniel, said the niece calmly. He told me he had a horror of dogs. He was once hunted into a cemetery somewhere on the banks of the Ganges by a pack of pariah dogs and had to spend the night in a newly dug grave with the creatures snarling and grinning and foaming just above him, enough to make anyone lose their nerve. Romance at short notice was her speciality. And if you enjoyed that, you might also enjoy the audiobook that Phil Lee has been listening to. Miriam Margulies, Dickens' Women. What an absorbing 90 minutes of fun and fantasy is this. Miriam Margulies earned an Olivier Award nomination for her one-woman show Dickens' Women when it toured the world in 2012, which was the 200th anniversary of Charles Dickens's birth. And these two CDs give us a real flavour of that experience, recorded, as it was, before a live audience. Miss Margoli's love and skilful interpretation of some of the writer's best-known female creations and of some of the actual women in his life illuminates these pieces. I was going to say readings before I chose pieces, but the warmth and energy, the sheer exuberance that are injected into them bring them to life. 
It's almost as if we spend a few minutes in the real company of these women rather than merely listening to someone repeating the written word. Here we're treated to a story of Dickens' life with characters such as the remote Miss Havisham left at the altar and forever to wear her wedding dress as it disintegrates along with her faith in people, the most melodramatic of literary heroes, Little Nell, whose literary death caused outrage and despair across the country as she meets Mrs Jarley, the owner of a travelling waxworks, and the scheming and deeply unpleasant Mr and Mrs Bumble, they of the workhouse in Oliver Twist. Mr Bumble drank his tea down to the last drop, finished a piece of toast, whisked the crumbs from his knees, wiped his lips and deliberately kissed the matron. Mr. Bumble, I shall scream. <laughs> I'm only a foolish, excitable, weak creature. Not weak, Mum. Are you a weak creature, Mrs. Gourney? <laughs> We're all weak creatures, Mr. Bumble. Miss <laughs> Margolis also presents the early death of Mary Hogarth. Dickens' wife's sister, who was the inspiration behind many a 17-year-old female character in the novels, and the shameful behaviour of Dickens himself in isolating his wife after he had secured a separation from her, a process in which she was cut off from all her children too. Listen out for Rosa Dartle, Mrs Steerforth's companion in David Copperfield, and one of my favourites, Flora Finching from Little Dorrit, based on a Maria Beadnell, who was an early passion of Dickens. Incidentally, Miriam Margulies played Flora in the film version of Little Dorrit, released in 1988. There's lots more to enjoy, and I'll leave you to discover the rest. If you'd like to borrow this audiobook, please let us know at Colin Chance House, and we'll send it to you as soon as it becomes available. In the meantime, whatever you're listening to, and however you're listening to it, we wish you an enjoyable and rewarding time. That was Phil Lee. You might think that June would be the time when butterflies come out in force, but one species, the heath fritillary, is not as common in the UK as it used to be. Christine. The heath fritillary has suffered a long-term decline in both distribution and abundance, becoming confined to just a handful of locations in southern England. By the 1980s, the species was considered to be on the verge of extinction in the British Isles. But thanks to the efforts of butterfly conservation and others, the precipitous decline of this small fritillary was at last halted. The butterfly breeds in early successional habitats, where the vegetation has recently been cleared, enabling its larval host plants of common cow wheat and ribwort plantain to thrive. A long association with the coppicing cycle earned it the lovely nickname of Woodsman's Follower. But as coppicing died out in Britain, so did the Heath Fritillary. Since the 1970s, its distribution has shrunk by 68%. Without concerted conservation work, the loss of the Heath Fritillary may have become a reality. Fortunately, the species is now mostly stable in distribution with a decline in abundance generally slowing over the last decade. Though the outlook remains of great concern and the species is still a high priority, there have been many successes that give us hope for the future. 
As with so many other butterfly and moth species that have dwindled to near extinction, changes in land management have often been to blame. Recreating the conditions that were once a byproduct of forestry and farming is crucial for egg-laying and larval development in the heath fritillary. We need to open up clearings by traditional coppicing and on moorland sites we need to provide extensive grazing along with small-scale burning or cutting to tackle gorse and scrub encroachment. In East Kent, the butterfly has responded positively to targeted woodland management resulting in the last three years being some of the best on record. Last year, 2,292 heath fritillaries were recorded on a single day, and last year, 1,338 individuals were counted in a single clearing within the RSPB Bleen Woods Reserve. There's more good news from two other privately owned sites in the area. A colony was discovered this year at one where coppicing has taken place and the same is likely at the other location where flushes of common cow wheat are evident from new woodland management. Over the past three years, we have also seen an increase in heath fritillary numbers at the species three woodland sites in Essex. Again, targeted coppicing and ride management have been carried out. Habitat restoration work has also taken place at other nearby woods in the hope that the butterfly will recolonise. The strategy of maintaining connected habitat patches within existing woodlands is the way forward, since the proximity of urban areas gives us little alternative. Meanwhile, in the southwest, the signs are hopeful too. During the 1990s, grazing declined on Exmoor, which reduced the range of the heath fritillary. But since then, the number of colonies and sites has remained stable. In these heathland valley slopes, the ideal management is cattle and pony grazing, often combined with rotational winter burning, known as swaling, and cutting. The heath fritillary has responded well to rotational habitat management on Exmoor, with encouraging numbers recorded in 2018 and 2020. Our hope is that new colonies will establish after sightings in new locations last year, helped by the good weather and continued efforts of the National Trust, Exmoor National Park Authority and Butterfly Conservation. In the Tamar area on the Cornwall-Devon border, the heath fritillary is stable too, following the highest timed counts ever recorded in 2017 and 2018. The estimated peak population was slightly lower in 2019 due to poor weather conditions during the flight period, but this year's results look much better, with numbers exceeding those during the highest count last year. The continued survival of this rare species due to sustained habitat management is a big win for conservation and something we should celebrate. But we can't let up, not least because climate change is emerging as a potential new threat there is much work still to be done. The Right Reverend Lord William Cecil, one time Bishop of Exeter, was himself a bit of a butterfly, flitting from one disaster to the next, as detailed in Fergus Butler Galley's Field Guide to the English Clergy. Barney. Sent to Eton at an early age, William there acquired the name Fish due to his persistent gormlessness. With the admirable pastoral intuition for which the English aristocracy is renowned, when his family learned of the nickname used to torment William at school, 
they promptly adopted it as well. After receiving one of the worst marks ever recorded by a student in his law degree at Oxford, William somehow fell into holy orders, possibly helped along by his father, Prime Minister Lord Salisbury, and ended up as the Vicar of Hatfield, near the ancestral home of the Marquesses of Salisbury, where his father could keep an eye on him. And there William would have remained had a number of strange coincidences not intervened. In 1916, the then Bishop of Exeter took advantage of new legislation and retired, drawing an enormous pension worth a third of the diocese's income until his eventual death in 1931. On top of this local financial crisis, Herbert Asquith was now pretty busy with the small matter of the First World War, and so Episcopal appointments were not top of his list. Civil servants dug out the name of the only clergyman capable of supporting himself as a bishop by private means, and so in 1916 Fish was made Bishop of Exeter. Cecil's eccentricity was noted almost immediately. He made an early impact when he threw a large quantity of copper sulphate on the fire in his study while meeting senior diocesan clergy, remarking as his colleagues cowered behind the furniture staring at the green flames that he liked the colour. Visits to the palace became something of a social minefield. The dean's wife, invited to take tea with the bishop, related her shock when Cecil removed the plate of crumpets provided and proceeded to feed them to two rats that appeared on cue out of holes in the floor. His presence at services was at least as bizarre. Prior to one Holy Communion, he placed a handkerchief in his mouth for safekeeping as his hands were full, only to emerge from the vestry and begin the service with the dirty piece of fabric still hanging from his mouth. Cecil was more dangerous when allowed out of the immediate confines of the cathedral close. Once, when he'd somehow managed to become separated from a procession he was meant to be leading in a rural parish, he accosted a terrified villager, bellowing, Which way did the hinds go? His normal course of action, when he found himself somewhere and had forgotten why, was to ring his wife. Many a Devon postmistress had stories of the bearded bishop barging in, demanding use of a telephone in order to work out where he was. This habit of well-intended housebreaking, along with his penchant for borrowing bicycles, earned him a new nickname, Burglar Bill. His fixation with bicycles became quite a serious problem. After being driven to one diocesan appointment in a car, he mysteriously returned on a woman's bike. Such was his horror at this accidental theft that he immediately rang the police, found out the owner and pedalled into Exeter to return it. He placed the bike against a wall, apologised to its owner and then promptly rode off on it again back to the palace. Eventually his wife and chaplains conspired to paint his own bicycle bright red in order to distinguish it from other Exeter bicycles. The colour eventually had to be changed to a canary yellow after the bishop returned with a series of postman's bicycles complete with undelivered post. Along with Burglar Bill and Fish, Cecil acquired the nickname Love in a Mist as a result of his fuzzy thinking and general ineptitude. Somewhat problematically, he could also be something of an autocrat, being by equal measures angry and confused when he didn't get his own way. 
After one particularly stormy encounter with the chapter of the cathedral, he tried to abolish the position of dean altogether, only to calm down and repent some days later. He was also heard asking whether something could be done about that awkward book after a theological discussion didn't go his way. He was referring, of course, to the Bible. Despite his simian appearance and bizarre behaviour, Cecil was well loved by the people of Devon, except perhaps those who were cyclists. When he died in 1936, they clubbed together to commission a memorial in the cathedral he had not long before threatened to shut down. A plaque near the monument expresses the wish that it might keep alive forever the memory of William Cecil. The people of Devon can rest easy, whether it's for bike burgling, housebreaking or his forays into domestic chemistry. There is little chance of such a figure being forgotten. We began this magazine with a few June-related questions, and here are a few more. Number one. Which train, noted for its luxury, began operating on the 5th of June, 1883? And here's a clue. It featured in a story about Poirot. It is, of course, the Orient Express. In 1968, June Whitfield began her long television partnership with which actor and comedian? Terry Scott. He actually went to my primary school, Watford Fields. Number three. Which 1956 film adaptation of a Rodgers and Hammerstein stage musical of the same name features the song June is Busting Out All Over? Here's a hint. The film revolves around Billy Bigelow. And the answer is Carousel. And number four. What historical event happened on Tuesday the 6th of June 1944? And the answer is D-Day. In June 1949, George Orwell published his political novel of life under a totalitarian government. What was it called? 1984. In 1989, the Chinese government sent in troops to clear which square that had been occupied for seven weeks by protesters. Chinaman Square. And for those of you with long memories, the actor best known for playing the lead role in the long-running TV series The Adventures of Robin Hood died in June 1985. Can you name him? He was, of course... Richard Green. Which actress did the American playwright Arthur Miller marry in London in June 1956? Marilyn Monroe. Along with cancer, what is the other zodiac sign for those people who are born in June? Gemini. And at what ancient site do people gather in June to celebrate the summer solstice? Stonehenge. Which Muslim festival 
will be celebrated this year on the 28th, 29th of June. Eid What important event occurred on the 2nd of June, 1953? The coronation of Elizabeth II. And on the 8th of June, 1913, Emily Davison, a suffragette, was fatally injured. How? She was struck by George V's horse at the Epsom Derby. Which ceremony is performed annually by British infantry regiments on the second Saturday in June? Trooping the colour. And if you were listening carefully, you'll know the answer to this one. How many days did June originally have in the Roman calendar? 29. And finally, on which date in June this year does the summer solstice occur? June the 21st. The summer solstice of 1917 marks the moment when a road paved with very good intentions reveals its hellish destination. In this month's audio playhouse, we present John Stanbury's the Microsynologist. Mr. Truck? Ah? Oh, what is it, boy? Mr. Truck. Chef's asked me to ask you to cut some cabbages for the dinner tonight and says, can you lift him 20 pounds of potatoes too, please? Oh, I ain't got time for that, boy. I've got them borders to plant up before they get here and finish mowing the front lawns. You can lift haters, can't you? Oh, no. On second thoughts, you'd probably spear them with a fork and ruin them and my reputation with them. I'll lift the spuds and you cut the cabbages and, and be quick about it. Have you got some scissors, Mr. Truck? Scissors, boy? <laughs> Get yourself a proper tool. Here, use my machete, but be careful. It took me days to get a keen edge on that. Hey there. Stop that. Hey. Killers. Hey. Murderers. What, what's going on? Here, give me that, boy. Hey, watch it, will you? Hey, have oh, a care or back. you'll hurt somebody. How would you like having your ankle slashed? Huh? Hey, you How can't... do you think that feels? Ow. Murderer. Hey, you... Dr. Petsky. Hey, get, get back. Mr. Shrug. You put that knife down. Shrug. Back off, don't, doctor. Don't. Dr. Get away. Petsky. Don't. Oh. Oh. Shrug. Oh. <coughs> Mr. Shrug. Help. In 1917, towards the end of the Great War, the Royal Sussex Institute for the Deaf was offering medical assistance to disabled servicemen suffering severe deafness caused by shells and gunfire at the front and to reintegrate them into society. The Institute was situated on an otherwise uninhabited island off the Sussex coast, and between 30 and 40 patients were resident in the care of a score of nursing and auxiliary staff under the direction of myself, Sir Peter Wallison. We had two doctors, both specialising in hearing trauma. One of these doctors, by the name of Kopetsky, 
came from a family of Quakers, which had itself exhibited a genetic tendency to deafness in middle age. So now in his mid-thirties, Kopetsky had a very personal and quite pressing interest in microsomology, that is to say, the medical enhancement of any hearing at all that might yet remain even in an apparently profoundly deaf patient. Ah, uh, Dr. Kopetsky. Professor Wallison. Yes, Kopetsky, I was wondering how you're getting on. Professor? Well, your work with Frank Stone. Oh, we're making some progress, Professor. Well, it's just that the solstice dinner's only a couple of months away, and I fancy a rather useful chap may be joining us as a guest of honour. Who's that? Future Minister of Health, don't you know? Clueman or Cluemore or something. Ah, Clueless? <laughs> Quite likely, but not without considerable influence. <laughs> and the budget, some of which I was hoping he might be persuaded to challenge your work, if we can convince him it's worth it. Of course it's worth it. Yes, but how's it going? Have you seen any improvement at all in his hearing? Well, actually, I have to say, Stone isn't that keen anymore, to be honest with you. He was happy to undergo the tests and so on, but now that there's actually a drug to try out on him, well, he got cold feet. Says he might just live with the deafness, you know? Not be pumped full of chemicals. Ah, anything I can do? You could find me another volunteer. I think these lads have had the volunteering spirit knocked out of them. We can't get any of them to take part. Frank Stone was the only one interested. Just leave it with me for a few days, Professor. I'll I'll sort something out with him. Very good, Kopetsky. I'm sure you'll think of something. So why shouldn't I take the stuff? Just so that Stone can see there are no ill effects from it. Then perhaps he'll agree to carry on. What have I got to lose? Tomorrow. I'll start it tomorrow. Thursday, June the 7th, 1917. Day nine of the trial. Feeling well. Perhaps a slight hissing in the ears, nothing else. I shall give it a few more days, a week or two perhaps, then speak to Stone. Try to get him back. Lord, what's that infernal row about? Hey there, you men, can't you find a, a softer ball? You're making enough noise to wake the dead. Who would be glad enough to hear it, God knows. Of course, I understand that. Yes, I, I know, mister, but funding research like ours would be more... No, no, of course. Sounds like we won't be getting that funding after all. Is your health minister getting cold feet as well, Professor? Sorry, Kopetsky, what do you mean? I couldn't help hearing you this morning, speaking to Whitehall. Kopetsky? That was a private phone call. It was rather loud, sir. I think even the men might have heard. I don't think so, Kopetsky. I had the door and both windows shut because it was private. Were you listening outside? Certainly not, Professor. I was in my room. Is he still coming, though? Who? 
the future health minister, sir. Yeah, yes, he's, he's still coming. So make sure you've got some good news for him. I will, sir. Professor, I wonder, could you have a word with Trug, the gardener, for me? There's a, a bird or something nesting below my window. Makes the most dreadful row, chirruping all night. Been at it since the beginning of the week. Can you ask him to find where it is and remove it? I could really do with a decent night's sleep. Eighth of June, 1917. Since the drug does not seem to be having any ill effects on me, I have asked Stone to come back. If he knows it's safe, perhaps he'll help me do a proper clinical trial on a... Good heavens, there's no need to batter the door down. Oh, Stone. Nurse, come in. Sorry to disturb you, sir. Guinea pig! Don't think of it like that, man. It's a valuable clinical exercise to establish... No, no, no. Sir, Corporal Stone is very distressed. He says... He doesn't understand, nurse. There's no danger. I've tested it on myself. No, sir. Corporal Stone's pet has gone missing. What? Guinea pig! Guinea pig? It disappeared some days ago, he says. Mm. We spent most of yesterday and all of today so far looking for guinea it. Guinea pig! It's a sweet little thing, but What really... sort of noise does a guinea pig make? Well, I really don't know, sir. Not much, I believe. Sort of chirruping. Check the log store below my window. Sir? Just a hunch. They found Frank Stone's guinea pig, safe and well, nestling quietly in the log store below Kopeski's window, just as he had suggested. Questions were asked if Kopeski had hidden it there himself as some sort of lever to get Stone back on the project. Kopetsky denied that, of course, and in fact, from that moment on, he rather seemed to lose interest in using stone at all. June 10th, day 12 of the trial. I believe it is working. That tiny guinea pig keeping me awake 30 feet below my window was just the beginning. It seems this stuff really might enhance sensitivity at least in a hearing person. Just in time for the minister's visit. Wallison will be pleased. It is a week since the guinea pig incident. I have been trying to consolidate my findings, but I cannot concentrate. Too many distractions. I went out this afternoon on my bicycle to get away from the dreadful sound of Trug's lawnmower. All around me the birdsong was piercing and a car miles off in the mainland roared like a tank at full throttle. There was a fishing boat out on the Solent more than a mile away but I could hear the fishermen talking about an unusual species of eel they had just snagged in their net. What are you making? The bike's wheels on the gravel were painful to my ears, and I didn't last long at it. I got off and stood on the grass verge. As I did so, a yelp came from under my foot, as if I had trodden on a cat. But, and here's the darndest thing, there was no cat. I had merely stood upon a dandelion. 
Nearby was Trug's wheelbarrow, full of edging plants. I went over and glanced into the barrow. The sun was high and hot, and crushed tightly together, the torrid plants could be heard whimpering desperately to one another. Trug, meanwhile, had moved his mowing machine to a more distant lawn, but the long, drawn-out communal scream from the millions of grasses he was decapitating almost drowned it out. As if a hundred pigs were all being slaughtered at once. The pain inflicted on my ears was almost unbearable. The pain inflicted upon my soul by the screams of living plants being murdered by unheeding humans was intolerable. I abandoned my bike and fled back to my room. But what now? The water that moves in the building's pipework sounds like fingernails scraping a blackboard. The clattering in the kitchen away in the east wing is as deafening as a primary school percussion band practicing right here in the room with me. Voices all around me echo endlessly. And the blood that circulates in my own body thunders without mercy like a roaring vortex into a hell. I hadn't seen anything of Kopetsky since they had found Stone's guinea pig, though he had sent through a note. A little hysterical, I thought, saying he'd made some kind of breakthrough. It was the morning of the solstice dinner when the housekeeper, Mrs. Broom, came to me in my study. Come in. Oh, Professor Wallison, sir, it's... It's Dr. Kopetsky. Yes? Well, the girl went to clean his room this morning, sir, and she says she's afraid the doctor's not well. What does he say is the matter with him? Well, he's not there, sir, but the room's in a mess. The furniture's all jumbled, she says. What does she mean, jumbled? You'd better come, sir. The room was indeed in a state. The mattress was upended against the main window, with the wardrobe pushed up against that. The smaller window was similarly barricaded with bedding and spare linen desperately muffling the glass. In a corner there were piles of books forming the walls of a low makeshift shelter, its roof afforded by a bed frame itself piled high with desk drawers, more books and a folded carpet. Plates of food lay untouched within and pages of typewritten notes were scattered over the floor. Mr. Trug? Ah, oh, what is it, boy? Mr. Trug, chef's asked me to ask you to cut some cabbages for the dinner tonight. What are they doing? 20 pounds of potatoes too, please. Boy, ain't got time for that, boy. I've got them borders to plant up before they get here yeah. and finish mowing the front lines. You can lift haters, can't you? Oh, oh no. On second thoughts, you'd probably spear them with a fork and ruin them and my re reputation with them. I'll lift the spuds and you cut the cabbages and, and be quick. No! Have you got some scissors, Mr. Trump? Scissors, boy? <laughs> Get yourself a proper tool. Here, use my machete, but be no. careful. It took me days to take a keen edge on that. No! We were right by the garden, searching for Kopetsky, when the accident happened. Hey there! There were several witnesses. I was one of them. Stop that! I insisted it was an accident Killers. because it was Truck himself 
who forced the garden fork into Kopetsky's hand. Trug was trying to push Kopetsky away from the terrified boy using the fork's handle, so the sharp prongs were pointing back at Trug himself. When Kopetsky pushed forward, two of the prongs entered Trug's chest, piercing his heart. Mr. Trug, help! What was he doing? Get a blanket. They accepted this evidence at the inquest, and rather than prison, they said to Kopetsky to a psychiatric hospital. The hearing drug he was taking must have affected his reason. It seems he believed that he discovered that plants, all living things, in fact, not just animals, can feel pain and distress. A lifelong Quaker, though, Kopetsky was already a non-meat eater, and now this new discovery of his debarred him from eating vegetables as well. After two months, the poor soul succumbed to simple starvation. I scoured Kopetsky's papers for details of the drug he'd developed, but his notes referred solely to the mounting cacophony in his head and to numerous examples of his enhanced sensitivity, like some nonsense about having heard a conversation aboard a boat that was miles out in the Solent. And then these preposterous stories of vegetables feeling pain. (laughs) I ask you, although the fishing boat incident was actually later confirmed as true, something about a new breed of eel they'd discovered, the rest of it sentient vegetables, surely, well, that must have been nonsense. No? In The Microsynologist by John Stanbury, Professor Wollison was played by Mark Devlin, Dr. Kopetsky by Nigel Buckley, Trug the Gardener by Martin Bourne, and The Chef's Boy by James Hand. Val Harrison played the housekeeper and Poppy Savage the nurse. Other parts were taken by members of the talking newspaper. And that brings us to the end of this month's Look Here. Administration was handled by Carol Hartle and her team and copying was done by David and Sylvia Day. We'll be with you again in October. So until then, it's goodbye from Christine, goodbye. Jane, goodbye. Barney goodbye. and from me, Stephen. Goodbye. Goodbye.